Welcome to Biblical Brainstorm, the Seth and Chandler podcast. I'm Seth. This is my man Chandler. What's going on, Chandler? How's it going, man? Long time to see. Oh yeah, I know. Been two uh, weeks. Yeah, it's been a couple weeks, but we're back and we're ready to go. Uh, I know music school's been kicking my butt. How's uh, history been treating you? <laughs> uh, well, I'm almost done actually with the semester. Um, nice. I uh, usually I'd have like three to four weeks left, but uh, I'm almost done with one class and I got two things left in another. So if I just, you know, really try this week, I could finish yeah. my classes, have an early summer. Nice. So that'd be pretty nice. Um, uh, we got like, uh, I don't know, like four weeks left, I believe. I know it's uh, right at the beginning of May. So it's one, mm -hmm. two, three, four. Yeah, about four weeks. So mm -hmm. coming up on it, uh, I know I got a, you know, juries and uh, auditions and, uh, or one audition, but uh, and then of course you're, usual finals and stuff i do have one history class uh western civ 2 that's been oh, fun. nice so yeah. we're just getting to um oh darn where'd we leave off uh industrial revolution we're in the 1800s so cool. yeah so that's been fun and, yeah uh, music is always always fun in the bad mm -hmm. ways in the good ways <laughs> so i'm definitely yeah. looking forward to more time in the summer even though i'm taking classes in the summer i still got a little bit of a break and um i will have uh, just more time to devote to this. Yeah, so I, I do want to make some short videos, uh, kind of like TikToks. I might start a biblical brainstorm TikTok. So if you guys think that's a good idea, you know, just comment below. If it's not a good idea, <laughs> say stay away from it. <laughs> you know, are you going to uh, do like biblical TikTok dances? Definitely not. <laughs> um, but I'm probably going to make dancing in front of the ark a, a BB TikTok and then post the reels for, um, you know, the some clips from our I, stuff. yeah the clips it'll like go to instagram and facebook and like youtube i think they have short so you can kind of like if you make a short on or like a tiktok you were able to post it on multiple platforms so yeah in kind of like a reels way tiktok would be cool that's yeah. different <laughs> i actually don't have a personal tiktok i just you know it's not my not really I've my never theory, been on but... it never <laughs> been on the app in my entire life but yeah i think not... you know if i do it for biblical brainstorm that uh I'll, I'll make the sacrifice there. <laughs> Go into pretty the... much. This is pretty much the only content that I create and put on the internet is this. So uh, every once in a while, I'll post on my social medias, but filming stuff that looks like the, on the TikTok style, like it's just for every. I just haven't gotten into it, but it's. Uh, yeah. I do watch them on. Like, I think there's tools in there too, so that would be cool. That could be fun. Uh, yeah. But yeah, today we are talking about worship in the early church. So obviously, this is part um, three basically yeah i mean technically we we had a it's our fourth episode back but the first episode was just kind of like an introductory you know season two we're back at it kind of thing yeah. but in the series of worship this is our third episode we covered worship in the old testament a little bit of worship in the new testament and obviously we didn't go into into every detail that we possibly could i mean that that wouldn't be that episode would be 10 oh, hours yeah. long if we we really covered everything every aspect but uh we're just kind of like a bird's eye overview of of some some things, some cultural things as well. Absolutely. And then now week three, we're worshiping the uh, early church. So post new Testament. Now um, we'll probably basically end off at like the edict of Milan. So when Constantine comes to power, so it'll kind of be our cutoff point. So from 70 AD to about 312, I think uh, edict of Milan. And then uh, actually I think I have here 313. Yep. 313. Oh, yes. Uh, and history. You're the yeah. bigger history buff than I, so you would probably know that better than me. <laughs> oh, names and dates. That's all it is, right? Uh, yeah, pretty much. So then 
next week we'll probably cover post Constantine what the, the post Constantinian um, church looked like and mm-hmm. and church worship looked like. But today we're kind of like in that persecution time, right? So from mm-hmm. the destruction of the temple 70 AD to you know Christianity now becoming legal under Constantine and the Roman Empire uh, 313. So this is our our gap here of what did the church look like during this time? especially with heavy persecution. What did worship look like? What did church services look like? Um, there's a lot to to kind of explore there, like what was their life like? And uh, yeah, we're going to dig into some of those things, uh, what they did as a church and uh, how they kind of operated and how they worship. And this was a topic that uh, last semester when I was in Doctrine of the Church, uh, that was one of the first questions our uh, professor asked us was, when people say, you know, we're a New Testament church, we want to be a New Testament church, you know, that's what we model ourselves after kind of thing they're like so that's great and all but what does that mean so we went over you know talked about you know what was the church in the new testament like you know how did all that work and of course we worked from new testament all the way up to modern day because you know we're going over the church at large but um but yeah that was one of the questions she asked was you know what does it really mean to be a new testament church is it a good thing is it a bad thing and uh it was definitely interesting getting into it then and getting into it now kind of looking at what it was really like and uh you know people use a new testament church as like a uh a way to describe like how they run things which mm-hmm. i feel like maybe might be a little misused but maybe in the in general sense of you know some of the, like the house churches and stuff like that it might apply but mm-hmm. uh, yeah definitely an interesting time to see how we've gone from that to where we are now, but yeah. And we're slowly going to see the progression too, as we go through these weeks up until modern day, kind of like what's changed and everything. Um, but yeah, also I just want to say shout out to my wife for this fresh squeezed <laughs> orange juice that nice. happens every once in a while, but this is, nice. this is great. You know what I need? I need like a biblical brainstorm mug to just, uh, like, we, we should do that. Yeah. <laughs> I usually just have water, you know, but you know, if I have a right. mug, I might as well just, you know, have a BB right here. Right. That'd be a great idea. We should do that. Or at least get stickers and then you can put it on whatever you want. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah. like I have a lot of here with my stuff on it, but That's true. stickers might work. Little, little stickers. Um, so yeah, obviously last week we we talked about New Testament worship. And so how did this, you know, develop? And I want to take us through a little bit of the history here of like um, temple worship itself and how that kind of looked like. And so you, you we have this progression from, we have, the temple, which, you know, the Jews had in Jerusalem. And that was a big deal, right? So everybody flocked to the temple. That was where the priests were. That's where the sacrifices were taking place. This is kind of like our uh, expression of worship in the early, the old, in the Old Testament. And we talked about that a little bit on two, um, two episodes ago. But that's, then, that point, that's all the Jews knew was the synagogue, the temple. You know, that's, yeah, that was so all worship Temple. And then, of course, you know, if you go back to Moses, Mount Sinai, there's like this mountain, right? So we have mountain and then temple. But then when we get to in between the Old and New Testament, and we didn't have an episode, uh, we could have actually had an episode of what it looked like in between Testaments, you know, intertestamental period, but we just jumped from the Old Testament, New Testament. But what happened in that intertestamental period was something of somewhat of a change in, in Jewish worship, which was you had the temple, but then you had the destruction of the temple, Right. That's that's problematic in the sixth century. Right. B.C. And so you have the destruction of the temple. And now we have this time where the Jews are in disarray. They're like, OK, the temple has been destroyed by Babylon. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Assyria came in with Israel and then Babylon took over Judah. And now they're being dispersed. They got deported to Babylon. Those uh, with the Babylonian cap- uh, captivity. 
And so now it's like, well, what do we do now? Like the temple is gone. How do we worship God? How do we express our devotion to him? And so this is where you see the slow um, rise of synagogue, mm -hmm. right? So wherever uh, the Jews were, right, they're being dispersed into different areas. Now, instead of everybody coming to the temple, now whatever city that we've been dispersed at and wherever we live now, we create this, what's called like a, a house of, of God, right? This, this yeah. smaller, somewhat, uh, it started somewhat of a house scale too. So it's like you have the Jewish house church, mm -hmm. synagogue, which then develops into this actual, um, not temple, but like mini church, right? This is what's called just synagogue. Yeah. So you now have the Jewish synagogue, which is um, spreading out in multiple places after the destruction of the temple, right? After the Babylonian captivity. Yeah. And this is even, um, this goes up even more after the Greek and Roman occupation. So it's like, they can't get a break, right? So yeah. you got the Assyrians, yeah, you got the Babylonians. Really tough time for the Israelites, because I mean, yeah. you got to remember at this point, you know, for those of you that maybe don't realize, you know, how the timeline goes, like Israel just keeps getting um, dispersed. They keep getting under put under judgment of these other, other countries, Mm -hmm. And they're just being more or less just more and more torn apart. And they have all these generations that keep growing up here. And, you know, we're going to have a temple. We're going to have all these prophecies, you know, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, you know, all those prophets. That's when all this turmoil is going on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have this new generation coming up that has heard about all this. And then they finally get to go back to Israel. And they realize that there's pretty much nothing in Israel. And it's just a ruinous heap. And they're mm -hmm. like, the heck is this about <laughs> we were we were hoping for a temple we we're hoping for all this so they're really having to start over and you know they don't get a temple right away but like you said they start these synagogues and stuff so mm -hmm. you have to understand going into the new testament like what chandler's saying you know the context of what's going on here what the synagogue yeah. means to these people and rightly pointed out too this happened twice to the jews i mean it yeah. simultaneously happened to so uh, pull up this comment it's true after the destruction of the temple in 70 days so we'll talk about that in a second but i'm th talking about even the first temple was destroyed and then Judaism had become less temple centric. So they had, this has almost been reinforced over the years, right? With the Babylonian co um, conquest, with mm. the um, Persian, then you have the Greeks coming in, then you have the, the Romans, which were harsh as can be. Oh, and yeah. so now you have this in the intertestamental period, and then even more so, even after the second temple was destroyed, mm. this uh, the rise of the synagogue. So their Jews are dispersed everywhere, and they have these, these churches, per se, right? The synagogue. Um, which is the the house of prayer, right? It's the house of assembly. It's the house of um, worship, right, for the Jews, yeah. and the house of study, even. So actually, it was uh, there. It's more or less just um, coming and reading the Torah, you know. Exactly, not prayer. the place to sacrifice. Yeah. So so they even they knew that okay, the temple for the you know the big sacrifice synagogue which is the, um, you know, the area. And I think there was a couple of synonyms that they would call the synagogue. It referred to a house of prayer, a house of assembly, or a house of study, or mm -hmm. all, all the above. And so it is interesting, though, that, you know, even Jesus, like, coming out of that intertestamental period, even Jesus is referring even to the temple, even though the temple wasn't necessarily referenced that way. It was more of the synagogue. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Mm -hmm. Um and so this, you see this now Judaism being practiced where, okay, people are coming together in assembly, not just in the Old Testament, it was like the mountain or the, or the temple. They're becoming less temple oriented or, or centric or focused, right? Mm -hmm. And now they have synagogues, which are springing up. And this is actually 
conveniently what helps the gospel spread as well post 70 AD when it happens again. The next temple is destroyed. Yeah. Uh, and then you have this again, synagogues go, you know, spring up everywhere. Christianity, Christians are going to Jewish communities first. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's even Paul's, you know, first yeah, the Jew, then the yeah, Gentile. And so they you see Christianity springing up in places where there's a lot of synagogues. And then yeah. from there, it's starting to spread to places outside. Of that. I mean, synagogues really were a um, precursor to like modern day churches in a way, like a local church. You know, the what they practiced was different. But the idea of having a building where you met and prayed and heard the word and all that, mm-hmm. like that was a truly, you know, really a precursor to you know what we do today. And that's mm-hmm. really what the you know, we'll probably get into that later, but it's what the early church mimicked, you know, with their house churches in a way. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, house of prayer, read the word. Uh, they even brought uh, monetary offerings, not animal, but monetary, you mm-hmm. know, things like that. So it's really interesting how they yes. kind of perpetuated that. And that's a good, it's a good point too, because like Christianity didn't just spring out of a vacuum. There is a, yeah. a prior theology of prior framework that you know out of judaism that's being uh practiced right so you have the synagogue which is then you know developing and then when 70 ad happens when the next temple in jerusalem is destroyed once again once again, right? <laughs> once again now right. you have this widespread persecution of both jews and christians because now christians are on the scene right yeah and early christianity is almost seen as like a sect off of judaism it's hard to really distinguish between the two other than you know, their belief in Jesus as the fulfilled Messiah and the resurrection. But in practice, they're, they're still going to synagogue. They're still going, you know, they're, they're Jewish in, in custom and culture until it really starts to spread outside of Jerusalem, outside of the Palestine area. Mm-hmm. And then you have this, you know, um, more of a splitting between Christianity and Judaism, right? Uh, not just well, theologically, it was already there, but now right. in actual yeah. practice, it starts to to be more more separated yeah. but because christianity is like egregiously i guess you say persecuted at this time <laughs> um as well as, like as well as judaism yeah and it's spreading so rapidly they're forced to meet in churches and i like this uh or even underground in catacombs and so i like this comment up here it says what worship looked like very underground yes <laughs> it was a very underground grassroots movement uh why because they had to be Right. It wasn't like if they had the choice, oh, let's try yeah. to be a secret society, you know, because now it's kind of like the cool thing, right? Like grassroots movement. Let's start mm-hmm. like an underground church or underground movement, grassroots. It's yeah. just become like a popular buzzword, right? right. But uh, they, they, it's not that they intentionally tried to meet, uh, <laughs> you know, away from everybody can be seen in, in underground. It's because they had to. Thank you for modern day church in China. <laughs> yeah, it was persecuted and therefore they had to um you know meet in places where they weren't going to just be dragged out and killed for the faith right so it's definitely house house church like definitely not the the cool underground where it's like you know the secret cool kids club like the Mm -hmm. jazz clubs or music club or whatever it's definitely the has to be underground or else you'll get killed so (laughs) yeah and then we'll see and we'll, we'll talk more about next time is the development from really house church to and uh you know an open church setting now we're building um kind of not cathedrals that's even later but just church buildings right early like middle age and and even post 300 a.d uh churches where now it's public right post-constantinian churches are going to look a little bit different than pre-constantinian 
Constantine churches. So you have this uh, openness of a faith, right? There's it's going back to this kind of like not temple, but it is this sense of like we're moving back into this collective yeah. church setting. Something familiar that they knew, but was yeah. you know still very relevant, just practiced yeah. differently. Mm -hmm. And they're going to bring it up again, priests and, and all of this. So it's kind of this this development. It's funny. It's like a, a little you know a graph. You know those graphs that kind of go like you know up and down. I forget what that's actually called. Something curved, right? Um, oh, but it's yeah. like you know you have like temple worship, and then it kind of like goes into synagogue, house churches with Judaism, and then of course Christianity with persecution, and then it kind of comes back to you know like bigger and bigger churches, like mm -hmm. corporate setting, until you even culminate with the Hagia Sophia in, mm -hmm. in Constantinople, or um, you know St. Peter's Basilica, or, or things you know giant structures where lots of people are coming to meet and gather, uh, and you have this you know. Uh, development there somebody help me out here say the bell curve there you go okay yeah there we go. <laughs> I, I, that, was, I was actually gonna say that but i was like what you know if i'm wrong then i just kind of like what's up when you're talking about the graph like of course there's a spongebob quote for everything but uh do you, ever, you remember seeing that episode of the training video where he's like as you can see by this graph and it shows a video of a giraffe walking in africa it's like, <laughs> <clears throat> graph it changes and then you see the line graph he was talking about we all see if we can there's a spongebob there's a spongebob quote for everything that's show over <laughs> yeah. so anyway that, so we have this development right of you know going from temple or mountain and temple worship to uh synagogue to then house churches and then big church right again we're now having right. uh corporate level churches that are in cities with this more openness of faith and this is going to be a little later but within this 70 a.d period to 313 it's going to look more a lot of underground it's going to look like catacombs it's going to Look like house churches um, and small, you know, communities, um, which are really modeled after the old um, synagogue. Right? Yeah. You know. But what's a uh, you it's know you similar concept, you know? Yeah. You might ask though, okay, what happened in 70 AD? What happened in 313? You're you're throwing these dates around, like, okay, what what's the big deal about this year that you know you keep saying? So um, if you know a little bit about um, history in the middle. I would say Middle East, but Middle East mm -hmm. is more of like a modern um, political um, statement, I guess you could say, for like the region, right? Identification, I would say, of the region. But the uh, yeah, the Near East, right? That area, Palestine area. So that area, uh, the Romans, of course, owned. And then they came in and they destroyed the temple and waged war, right? They, you have mm -hmm. this Roman-Jewish war going on. In, uh, in 70 AD, they finally conquered and destroyed the temple. They destroyed the House of Records. They, they just really ravished the this, this city, right? Mm -hmm. um, very terribly. Um, yeah, it's pretty sad. <laughs> so now you're like, okay, so if the Romans came in and just completely, you know, annihilated uh, a large portion of the structures and, you know, even the people of, in Jerusalem and, and Judea around that time, then where do they go, right? Where, where's the remnant? And of course, that's because uh, they're going to spread out. And again, mm -hmm. that's what's going to accelerate that whole idea of synagogue and, and house churches because they can't meet back at the temple. They can't meet back in Jerusalem. And if you remember from last week, a little bit of, or not last week, but the week before, with the idea of Pentecost, so they're all gathered, right? Mm -hmm. So the spirit is moving. There, There's this excitement where, okay, here's, we're at the, we're at the temple. Uh, we're in Jerusalem you know, filled with the spirit, you know, God's moved to Pentecost. Um, all these nations are here. 
And there's this great um, excitement, I guess you could say. Because Pentecost was a Jewish feast festival. Um, so, I mean, that's why there was all those people there, you know, for mm-hmm. those of you that didn't realize that. But uh, Pentecost is a started off as a Jewish feast. And then, you know, the Holy Spirit, you know, showed up at Pentecost uh, in Acts. And now we associate it with that. But it was a Jewish feast. So that's why there were so many people in Jerusalem and Israel at that time. And probably part of the reason why Jesus wanted that to happen so that it could be spread when people go back to their countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is also a good sum- summation of, of what I was talking about. So Herod, of course, he was ruling over the province of, of Palestine, which was owned by the Romans. But then, of course, after the Jewish revolts, um, you know, and, and there's this up into the, you know, the 60s AD, there's going to be a lot of, um, I guess it's, I guess you could say tension, right? Uh, between them. And the Romans finally were like, hey, we, we can't have this. <laughs> so we're just going to completely annihilate the place, destroy the temple, et cetera. Really dominate and, and establish their will yeah. uh, in the area. So this is where you're going to have the spreading of Christianity. And now they're forced to be under persecution. And of course, you got Nero, who's persecuting Christians and then blames yeah. you know the Roman fire on, him, on, on them. And yeah. there's just a lot of uh, Roman emperors who are not going to treat Christians and even Jews, but even more so Christians now that's become popular, um, really terribly. And, so and it's, uh, it's the, um, I don't know what the word is, but the, isn't it the current consensus that Nero was the one that was persecuting Paul or was it a different emperor? Uh, I would say so. I mean, because he died in the sixties, Yeah, know, Paul and Peter died in the 60, early sixties. Uh, early mid sixties. So that was the emperor that they were dealing with. Probably. Gotcha. I wasn't sure. I thought that there was some, uh, controversy over that or maybe not controversy, but there was, you know, some people believed differently on that, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Vespasian. Uh, yeah, here's Vespasian and then Domitian, who I believe was his brother, uh, after him, who kind of finished the job, who was attacking Palestine at the time. So, um, yeah, and then there was a good one. Felix is the one who arrested. There was well, the governor was the uh, governor who arrested Paul in the Book of Acts. But as far as the emperor, I think you know by the time Paul died, it was Nero. Um, gotcha. But yeah, going back on, on topic a little bit. So um, with what did worship look like? So now, okay, we know they're persecuted. We know they're meeting together in house churches. They're still gathering at some level as believers. But what are they actually doing? <laughs> right? Like, what are the Christians doing in those house churches? What did their structure look like? What did they believe? What did they practice? What, you know, in that persecution time, what did it look like? And what we actually have amazingly is a few early church fathers like Justin Martyr. And um, we even have um, Eusebius, which is kind of at the at the later part. You know, he's kind of at the cuff of when Christianity becomes legal. But he's still he's a early church historian who kind of records what it was like beforehand. And we have some early church fathers. As a you know, Eusebius, a historian, and then we also have this amazing book called the Didache, which is a very early book, uh, which is the kind of the encapsulation of early church uh, theology and practice. Right, this is mm-hmm. kind of like the teaching of the apostles, the teaching of of what uh, was passed down to them, and it dates to the late first century to early second century. I think, in my view, it's a second century. But people have pushed it into and given evidence that it goes back into the first century. Now, it wasn't included in the Bible. There was some who wanted to include it Mm -hmm. in in the New Testament canon. But 
regardless, it's a Christian work that is early um, in its um, origination, right? And it quotes a lot of New Testament passages. And even in all of my, you know, school, my online studies, my, you know, lectures being back on campus and anything, I don't remember that ever being mentioned, which is interesting. But since it's a, you know, extra canonical book mm -hmm. or, you know, just more of a writing rather than a book, then I guess that's probably why. But I uh, find it interesting that I don't remember ever hearing that even to give context to some stuff. So that's yeah. a, something that's been new. This week. I will say I will say that a lot of Protestants don't mention the book. <laughs> so yeah. uh, it's not uncommon to be in a circle of Christianity uh, all your life and never hear about this book, which, you know, is kind of sad at one level. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's I don't get it. Where you really got to get into the weeds to learn some of that stuff, but it's definitely worth it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think there's this idea, you know, solo scripture and the Protestant movement. There's a lot of good to that, but. I think that some of the negatives out of that was to completely ignore Christianity <laughs> from yeah. basically the New Testament to uh, Martin Luther, which, you know, yeah. that, that's a lot of Christianity people are missing, and, you know, historically and then in, in great works. And so, but regardless of, okay, do I think it should it be in the New Testament? No, but should it be um, a book, you know, that sheds light on early Christianity and theology and should it be, um, you know, at least some authority, not the final authority, which is the canon, but at least some, you know, uh, authority. Yes, yeah. I, I believe that. You know, I think it gives us a perfect picture of what early church um, worship, early church Christianity looked like based on what it says within it. Yeah, just because uh, it's not, well, some cases, yes, some cases, no. But just because it's not in the Bible or it, just because it's not a book in the Bible doesn't mean it's bad to read. I mean, some are books, some. Some yeah, books are, are bad. Some. I mean, you can read them, of course, but don't, you know, you don't want to follow them or take them as gospel. But it's interesting. So you can see like the worldview at the time and different things for historical context. But, um, you know, just because it's an extra canonical book of the Bible or pseudepigrapha or uh, pseudo deuter, uh, whatever that word is. Deuter yeah, that, that word. <laughs> that one always gets me messed up. But. Just because it's one of those doesn't mean it's bad to read. So, you know, definitely. Especially the, the DDK. The DDK yeah. is basically just a um, the teachings handed down in the church. And so, at the very least, it gives you what yeah. the early church, the persecuted church, was doing. And so, I'm going to read from, and the chapters are super small. And so, chapter 7 uh, through 10 is basically, uh, I'm going to just kind of read it through. So, chapter 7 is on bap concerning baptism says, and concerning baptism, baptize this way, uh, having first said all these things, baptize into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Matthew 28, 19. So it gives a reference there, right? In living water, uh, but if you have not living water, baptize into other water. And if you uh, cannot into cold and warm, uh, but if you have not either, uh, pour out water thrice upon the head into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But therefore the baptism... So it's kind of like giving you options, right? It's like, okay, you have no excuse. <laughs> if you have holy water, use that. If you don't have holy water, you can use this. If you don't have that, then you use this. <laughs> I mean, it's like, just baptize the believer already. You know, it's like, if somebody wants to become a Christian, that shouldn't if, be an excuse. If right? it's raining outside, just run out and perform the ritual and run back inside. <laughs> I mean, they really want, you know, just please baptize the guy, right? Um, kind of gives them instructions there. So it's like, okay, this is what the early church was doing. 
Uh, and then it says, uh, but before the baptism, let the baptizer fast. Now that is interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, and the baptized as well. So what and whatever others can, but you shall order the baptized to fast one or two days before. So that that is something interesting because, you know, yeah. the early church took baptism very seriously. And it was just kind of this initiation, right, where mm -hmm. they're being passed from, okay, I'm, I'm not a believer, now I'm a believer, right? I'm going from death to life, and there's this, this passing through. And uh, it's a moment, right? It's a public moment of declaration to that community that you are now a believer. Yeah. And it's interesting how, you know, the person baptizing and then even the person being baptized, now they're told to fast mm. um, before. So you have early Christians, right, house churches, all this. So they're performing baptism. So that's one characteristic that they're involved in. And they're also fasting uh, before baptism. It's kind of like a preparation, right? So it, yeah. it, is, uh, it is interesting. And then now chapter 8, um, you know, this is concerning fasting and prayer. Um, but let not your fast be like the hypocrites, you know, for they fast on the second and fifth day of the week. I guess there was some significance to that. I need to look more into that. Uh, but fast on the fourth and the preparation, uh, which is Friday. Neither pray as the hypocrites, but as the Lord commanded in his gospel, thus pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done as in heaven. So on earth, give us uh, today our daily bread um, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and bring us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, for yours is the power of glory forever. Uh, thrice in the day, thus pray. So which three times a day, they were early Christians, pray the Lord's Prayer, mm -hmm. which I think is just a good habit already, you know? So it's, it's like, so we see um, early Christians, they're baptizing believers coming into the faith. They're praying the Lord's Prayer. They're fasting at least twice a week. Um, so that that is, um, you know, interesting in itself, right? And then we get to chapter 9, which is talking about the Eucharist, which if you don't know what that is, that's communion, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, you have this, uh, it's called, they call it Thanksgiving. So this is where we're getting into that worship part, right? Mm -hmm. So it's this time of Thanksgiving. It's this time of, you know, communion with God. And yeah. so they have this, uh, and we practice today, right? Protestants, they ha we have two ordinances, right? Uh, or sacraments, right? Depending and on that's your that's one that's one big difference with like the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox and Protestants is Catholic Church for sure. Eastern Orthodox, I'm pretty sure they do as well, but they will have you know Eucharist every service. You know that's just part of their liturgy. And usually Protestants, um, it typically it's not every service. It's usually for a special occasion, uh, once a month, uh, Christmas, New Year's, you know, things like that. So that's definitely one thing Protestants kind of got away from. Um, not that you have to do it every service, but I think it's you know not a bad thing to do. You know, it doesn't hurt. <laughs> but that's a big yeah. difference with how that branched off and changed. Yeah, and I mean, Paul is like, as often as you do it, just do it in remembrance of me. So how yeah. often you do it, actually do it, then make sure you do it in remembrance of Christ. Sure, but right, uh, and so then in chapter nine talks about now concerning the Thanksgiving or the Eucharist. Thus, give thanks. First, so even before you take me, like, give thanks to God. So this is like this praise, this thanksgiving to God that we're already yeah. seeing in the other church. First, concerning the cup, we thank you, our Father. And so it gives, like, a prayer to, like, okay, if you don't know what to actually pray, like, here's that actual, like, you know, uh, here's an example, right? 
So we thank you, our Father, for the holy vine of David, your servant, which, you know, we know is Jesus, which you made known to us through Jesus, your servant, to you be the glory forever. And concerning the broken bread, we thank you, our Father, for the life and knowledge which you have made known to us through Jesus, your servant, uh, to you be the glory forever. Even as this, and here's the really cool part, which kind of blew my mind. Even as this broken bread was scattered over the hills and was gathered together and became one, so let your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. Mm. For yours is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. Um, so, I mean, just pausing right there. This is like a thought because, you know, you gather, of course, the wheat and, and uh, you know, all the materials from the fields which then gets gathered together to make bread, right? right? And it was just a cool visual. You know, you have this agricultural, this agrarian kind of people, um, which, you know, now a very small portion of the population are farmers, so we, it's harder for us <laughs> to get this, right? But in this kind of society, you know, where this is more um, prevalent in their minds. Mm-hmm. And so they, as the everything's gathered, right, to form the body, Christ lets let us, the church, who are scattered all on the earth be united together in your kingdom. We are the body of Christ, like Paul says, right? So that's a good visual. And then it says, but let no one eat or drink of your thanksgiving, or the Eucharist, but they but they who have been baptized into the name of the Lord, for concerning this also the Lord has said, give not that which is holy to the dogs. Yes. <laughs> I mean, <that's>, yeah. <laughs> so this goes back to that initiation. We're, I'm going to go into these two ordinances or, or sacraments, whatever you call them. Uh, I know what they're called. It's just different traditions call them ordinances. <laughs> different traditions call them sacraments, depending right. on where you where you come from. But um, it, these two, obviously, how they practice that, I'll go into detail in a second. But I just wanted to point it out, though, that to really be in the community of the church at that time, right? You couldn't even take communion until you were baptized, and that you made a confession of faith, that you were a believer. So, because the communion communion was supposed to be for the body of Christ. Yeah. If you're in the body of Christ, it makes sense in their minds logically. Well, then don't partake in communion if you're not a part of the body of Christ. And that's something that the uh, Catholic Church still practices today, where you know if you're, they only serve communion to you know those that are in uh, community with the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And if you're not, there's a certain way that you go up where you can get a blessing from the priest. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so there's a lot of things that you know, even though there's a lot of differences between the Roman Catholics, Protestants, Eastern Orthodox, you know, the Roman Catholics do have a lot of things that are still rooted in, you know, long tradition, you know, that probably being one of them. But, uh, and actually all three traditions um, have uphold these two specifically. Yeah. Right. Obviously um, Eastern Orthodox and Catholic, they'll have more sacraments, I think up to 10, yeah. but the two that were in the D decay and the two that were, um, you know, proclaimed by Jesus to do in the church. Those two are practiced by all three, right? Um, you know, baptism and communion. Right. Now, the how, right, and, and the who, that, I mean, that gets a little, that's where we're getting into this. Well, what did early, obviously there's some um, diversity now, but what did the early church do? And yeah. so the post-New Testament, the early church, it looked like um, they were baptized so that they could be in the community of faith. And then once they're in the community of faith, they would partake and share in the Thanksgiving slash, you know, communion. Yeah. And so, um, and it's not the act of being baptized that saves you, but like you said, it's an outward expression that you are now, you know, with 
the believing community. So it's you know it's not that these um, sacraments, I guess we'll call them. It's not that these sacraments or initiation, you know, traditions, if you will, quote unquote. It's not that they performing these save you. It's just a uh, to show that you're in community with Christ and the church and everything, but also, like you said, to remember and remembrance of Christ. So it's mm-hmm. um, just to kind of keep your mind, you know, focused on, you know, what's important, but also showing, you know, the action part of showing what you believe kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I love that the DDK in chapter 10. So it describes mm-hmm. what happens after communion, right? Cause we don't always get that. Uh, it doesn't describe this fully what takes place after um, communion in the new Testament, but now we see the early church. Okay, what did the early church do after communion? And it says they have a prayer. So they have a prayer after communion. Obviously, they have a Thanksgiving before the communion. Then they break bread. They take communion. And then it says after uh, you are filled, right, which is taking mm-hmm. communion, thus give thanks. So you give thanks again. We thank you, Holy Father, for your holy name, which you cause to tabernacle in our hearts, and for the knowledge and faith and immortality, which you have made known to us through Jesus, your servant, to you be the glory forever. You, Master Almighty, created all things for your name's sake. You gave food and drink to men for enjoyment that they might give thanks to you. But to us, you freely gave spiritual food and drink and life eternal through your servant. Before mm-hmm. all things, we thank you that you are mighty. To you be the glory forever. Remember, Lord, your church to deliver it from all evil and to make it perfect in your love and gather it from the four winds, sanctified for your kingdom. Uh, which you have prepared for it, for yours is the power of the glory forever. Let grace come and let this world pass away. Hosanna to the God, the Son of David. So now you get this praise, right, yeah. of David. If anyone is holy, let him come. If anyone is not so, let him repent. <laughs> so, I mean, there's this inclusion, right? If yeah. you're not holy, repent. Just get 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 on board, man. Like, get on board. <laughs> It says, Maranatha, amen, but permit the prophets to make thanksgiving as much as they desire. So now you mm-hmm. have these, these leaders in the church, which, you know, after communion, there's this freedom like, okay, praise as much as you desire. So this is this early stages of this praise and worship that, you know, we see in the church where yeah. they are, they're gathering together, they're having communion, they give thanks before, they give thanks after, and then there's this kind of like... Um, being being alive right after the yeah. fact, where there may have been if they had musical instruments could have included music singing hymns right mm-hmm. praise this is a time of thanksgiving and praise and um you know people of the church would can give thanksgiving as much as so they desire mm-hmm. um so there isn't like a time stamp on this right so this could go for as long as you know the church community or in this case, they said the, the prophets, prophets as much as they wanted to give Thanksgiving, as much as they desire. So, nice. yeah, I've never really heard much about um, sacrament or, uh, I guess, a procedure of like what you're supposed to do after communion. You know, I know there's, you know, procedure of how you take communion, mm-hmm. but that's uh, very interesting. I've never heard instruction on what you're supposed to do after. Mm-hmm. And as far as my experience in my church, uh, growing up in the churches I've been to, is usually they'll. Uh, whenever the church will give uh, serve communion after this done, they usually go into you know singing a song or two um, of worship. So I guess it goes along with what they were doing. It's just mm-hmm. I've never heard or seen it written down of them saying you know this is what you should do. Yeah. but it makes sense. 
Yeah, I mean, it makes sense that, hey, you take communion, you celebrate. And I've seen this has happened, actually, in church service that I've been into. We take mm-hmm. communion and then you just go into another song of worship and there is a praise. Right. And actually, I will say that um, there's only two times in my life that I have been, maybe I could talk about my you know testimony more on a testimony episode or something we will do more yeah. chill episode. But there's two times in my life where I've been physically healed, like mm. instant, instantaneously. So one was scoliosis, and that's a big story for another time. I used to have scoliosis. Um, but the second one was kind of lesser in um, its, like, I didn't have a big condition. I was basically just sick, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that one was in after communion in praise and worship. And so I, I, it's funny. I just thought of this. I was like, yeah, that, that actually, that's crazy because yeah. this was when I was um, – Teen, like late teenager, I was probably like 17, 16, 17, okay. like ish age. And I remember I was sitting on the left hand row, like towards the front of the church. And I still remember this day. And I almost didn't come to church that day because I like was sick. Like mm-hmm. I was just like, I had like stuffed nose, my ear was clogged. I just, my throat, you can know, when you swallow, you can just feel it, whatever. Yeah. And so you're just kind of like, uh, you know, it's, I don't get sick often, but that day right. I was just like not feeling it right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I barely got any sleep the night before. And so I decided, oh, I'm just going to go to you know church with my family because I go to church, right? So I just um, I just go in anyway. So I remember we were worshiping. I went through the worship song. Then we took communion. They administered communion, took it. Right after communion, we got up and sang, you know, praise and worship song, right? Mm-hmm. And so it was still in kind of the end of worship. And I remember when I took the communion and I prayed and I mm. was, um, you know, just having that moment with God. Then I started, I put the cup down, almost down, and I started praising. And within like that 30 seconds of me putting down the communion and just like lifting my hands and just praising God and worship, mm. all of a sudden my ear popped and I was like, whoa. And then I wow. took a deep breath in and literally all of the sinus, everything in my nose was like gone. Wow. Was just like, which I mean, some, every time I tell this, so the mm. scoliosis thing, everybody's like, wow, that's the big one. You know, like, yeah. Oh, you got healed of scoliosis intensely. The thing is with that one is I never really felt it. I just knew I was like, well, something's different. And then I checked it in the doctor and I was like, okay, I have straight, straight spine now. This is wow. the only one. I think this one's just as powerful because even though it's like, okay, wow, you just had a, you were sick a little bit and you had a stuff, you know, it's a big deal. But this one was powerful for me because one, it was right after communion. And two, it was the only one that I physically felt because mm. I'm like, one moment I breathe, my nose is completely clogged. With yeah. And then the next breath is like, where did it all go? <laughs> it's like, like a vacuum cleaner. I was just like, like nice. there's nothing there. Right. And right. so then I'm like, okay. And then, you know, I spend the next like minute, like just kind of like observing, cause I'm a very skeptical person by nature. And so I'm just kind of analyzing what just happened. And I'm just like checking out like my throat, my, yeah. my ears, my claw, my stuff nose. And I'm just like completely feeling fine. And so I'm just looking around and I was like, praise be to God. So yeah. I'm just in worship. Right. And I, and I wonder, you know, that it's just that powerful link when I, when I see this and it's like, even the early church was doing this, right. They took communion and right after they gave Thanksgiving, they gave praise and to God right after. Yeah. And so it's, it is kind of like a cool thing where I think 
churches should engage in that more where it's not just, oh, communion, now sit down and let's give announcements and let's have a little fun time, right? But it's taking that, it's a serious thing and like taking that opportunity to like give thanks before, have communion and like give praise and glory to God and thanksgiving afterwards. I think mm-hmm. there, you know, we can learn a thing or two from the other church here. Yeah. Now, what's your uh, preference on prepackaged versus separate communion? <laughs> so I don't think the, I don't think the early church had the convenience of the prepackaged stuff, but you know, <laughs> the little cups with the yeah. I know we had a liturgical chapel at Lee, um, mm-hmm. which is uh, you know, the one comment I was asking about my background. You know, I'm I'm back up at school, so I'm not in my office back home in Florida, so my mm-hmm. background isn't as interesting <laughs> as my my office background. But uh, we were at the liturgical chapel. And uh, it's at a, they, they just built this beautiful stone chapel where it's very, you know, stained glass, all stone pews and everything. It's a really beautiful church. But they did uh, communion, Eucharist, and they went up and they just had a person with a loaf of bread, person with a cup of juice. And they would, you know, the people that were doing it were clean <laughs> and sanitized. They'd mm-hmm. rip off a piece of bread for you and you'd dip it in the juice and you'd go on your way. I kind of like doing it that way for something different. Uh, I don't know if you've ever done mm-hmm. communion that way. But, and they would have at least in the early church, it wouldn't just be a little, little wafer, you know, they would actually oh, yeah. have a meal. Right. Like they would be real. Yeah, bread, you know? yeah. Communion back in the day was an actual feast. Wasn't it like the juice and the bread, of course, was the big part of it, but they actually was a big sit down thing. Come together, it? break bread. They would eat, they would yeah. actually eat food. Right. Yeah. Um, so that, that is another difference between, okay, now, and then what did the early church do? Well, they actually gathered and ate food. Mm-hmm. They're not having like a little juice box and a little wafer. And I know, you know, that, Especially for big churches, it's an expense already. Yeah. But uh, that is one characteristic. So they're meeting in small house churches, getting baptized, they're having communion, they're giving thanks. They're that was something I saw when I was doing my study was the importance of the getting together and eating meals, which would, I guess, correlate with the um, communion. But yeah, mm-hmm. you, know, it's, you can't can't beat having a good meal with your bros, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and just uh, the last thing I was going to read from the DDK was chapter 14, skipping ahead here. Okay. This is kind of like where we get the um, the worship part, right? So it says, but every Lord's Day, gather yourselves together, which in this case was Sunday. And so it wasn't the Sabbath because the Sabbath was Saturday. And they, you know, early Christians were still going to set the synagogue mm-hmm. for Sabbath. Um, but then, of course, the Lord's Day, they would celebrate because Jesus rose again, right, on a Sunday. So they said on, they call it the Lord's Day, right? The Lord's Day, gather yourselves together and break bread. So again, there's the actual eating. And give thanksgiving after you have confessed your transgressions. So again, mm-hmm. confessing your sins, that your sacrifice may be pure. So that that's interesting right there, right? So giving thanksgiving yeah. to God, breaking bread, you have the communion part, confessing your sins and, um, you know, to God and then giving thanksgiving. Right. So that your sacrifice and that there's that word again, the worship, you know, the, what we talked about the last two times with worships, meaning sacrifice, right? That our spiritual worship, our spiritual sacrifice. So yeah. that your sacrifice may be pure. Well, first confess your sins to God, right? Draw them yeah. to God, confess your sins to him. But let no one that um, no one that is at variance with his fellow come together with you until they be reconciled so jesus talked about this right reconcile before you give your gift at the altar reconcile with your brother you know that that whole thing again that your sacrifice may not be profane so if you got a problem with your bro work that out you know <laughs> work that out beforehand then come to the presence of god and confess mm-hmm. your sins give you know right 
that sacrifice, that spiritual worship. And that's where the Catholic Church brings in their um, sacrament of confession, too, is they draw from that passage to confess your sin, uh, in this case, to the priest. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yes, yeah, so it's definitely, you know, like I said, Catholic Church, you know, they do keep a lot of things regimented from this period. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, that's, you know, whether that's you're confessing to a priest or you're just praying between you and God before you take communion, you know, it's that part's important where you, some, the symbolism of coming to communion being, you know, forgiven, you know, that's the big part. Yeah. No, this is a good encapsulation uh, of that because oh, yeah. it says here, transition. So the New Testament says, confess your sins to one another. The whole church would tell each other their sins, but that became too much. So the early church later put the confession. Yeah, that'd be a little rough. <laughs> so, I mean, no, there's hey, no churches that do that, though. There are still some churches that do, you're right. And yeah, I mean, the whole confidentiality thing, especially in our day now, right? But um, it, I know there, there was a there was a girl in the class that I had that talked about their church did that where it's like everybody knew everybody's business and it was one of those not so good environments, but I think that's pushing it. But yeah, I see where there is a a freedom to that as well, because it's like, okay, then it's like, if you truly change, right, this is your testimony. This is what I've done. Right. But now I'm free. Uh, Obviously if somebody comes up every week and is like saying the same thing, like, Oh man, again, this week, you know, I like my neighbor and it's like, dude, stop lying to your neighbor. Yeah. It was also part of our, uh, uh, it kind of went along, we were talking about church discipline too, but uh, we also went over, you know, confession, like the sacrament or the theology of confession. But yeah, it gets to a point where it's, it just is too, it's too much to go yeah. through all. Especially that. if you it's have like much. a thousand people in your church, all right, line up, yeah. what's your sin of the week? Yeah. So, um, but anyways, it says here, um, you know, that sacrifice may not be profane, for this is that of which was spoken by the Lord in every place and time offered to me a pure sacrifice for I am a great king says the Lord and my name is wonderful among the nations so there is this reverence there is this idea that you know don't mm-hmm. profane God's name <laughs> don't like you honor God and how do you do that by confessing your sins to him right by reconciling yourself with people you have problems with so if mm-hmm. you got beef with somebody work that out work that out <laughs> yeah it's that simple right and uh and then come to God confessing and um, partake in that, right? Like just worship, yeah. that praise, the Thanksgiving communion, right? Those, those things, part of the church. And so this is what the early church was following, right? This is kind of what they were doing in their house churches. As they met together, they would um, give Thanksgiving, they would say the Lord's Prayer individually themselves, um, and they would come together and say, hey, confession, right? Confess your sins to God, reconcile yourself with you, those you have a problem with so that uh, you may honor the, uh, the Lord. So, yeah, definitely uh, an important thing to do, you know, the communion, the confession and all that. And it's frequency, I guess, is up to the church, but it's definitely important to, you know, have that, that, you know, if you're going to have any one sacrament, you know, that's an important one to have together with your community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And going back to uh, some of these, these, right, the two, the two main ones, right, baptism and communion. So baptism itself. So this is, you know, uh, there's a couple traditions that kind of culminate into this idea of Christian baptism. Um, obviously, the word from the Greek is baptizo, right, um, to to immerse. Mm-hmm. But then you have this, you know, John the Baptist who's coming from this community who is, um, you know, it's not necessarily there's 
it's kind of inconclusive whether he was part of the Qumran community, the, the Essenes, or if he was just kind of affiliated in some way or just kind of like them. But regardless, you know, John the Baptist was in the wilderness, and there's some of the things that he shared with the kind of ideology or beliefs of the Essenes. And the Essenes, they had this um, purification, this constant washing, right, where there's, it was their, their version of baptism, right? But it was like a continual thing, mm. continual washing. Whereas John's baptism is very different, where he kind of, you see this divergence, where John is baptizing people once mm. uh, for the repentance of their sins. And then he baptizes Jesus, you know, and the whole idea with the sky opens up and God says to, the Lord says to Jesus, you know, this is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. And uh, this is, you know, you have Christian baptism kind of emerge after this, where this is like, Okay, a ritual rite where people are coming in. This is like what shows you are a believer. And it's a one time like you get baptized and then you're in the faith. And some people kind of struggle with this because they're like, well, what if I sin after I'm baptized? You know, mm -hmm. and you have this, what is baptism? What What is its significance? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and should I get re-baptized? Should infants get baptized? baptism i'll get into that in a second but it's just like okay all these questions surrounding baptism but i wanted to first link what uh what paul says about baptism and paul here if i can go colossians 2 11 paul makes the link with new testament baptism as was old testament circumcision mm -hmm. so he says in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having, so again, linking this, having been mm -hmm. buried with him in baptism. So you see the link there. In which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So this is a symbolic act, right? Which is identifying like, you know, Jesus's death and resurrection. And now we're, we're partakers of that. Right, we are. We once were dead, and now we're alive in Christ. That burial and raising so it's a symbolic act, but it's like it was for Old Testament circumcision. So, of course, Abraham. What was his sign? It was the sign of the covenant, right? So, the sign. What was the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament? Well, it was circumcision. Yeah, you can't so, redo that one. <laughs> and what did circumcision do? Did circumcision save? No. It, Israelites, right? Were there Israelites who were circumcised that were, you know, sinning, destroyed, going to the nations? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, we see even the, okay, rebellion of Korah and, you know, all these, these wicked people, right? Saul's mm -hmm. kind of demise. And so there's people living in Israel, which is that, that are circumcised, mm -hmm. but they're not, you know, saved per se. You know, right. you know what I mean? So then what was the point of circumcision? But it's a yeah. sign of the covenant. And it means that you get to, you are part of the community of God. So is in order to be an Israelite, you had to be circumcised. If you were not circumcised, then you were not an Israelite. Mm. <laughs> Does it make sense? So if, if somebody, if a foreigner came to Israel, yeah, what would they have to do? Say, Yahweh is my God. I get circumcised. I'm now in the community, right? I'm now in the community of of God. Of it's, almost, 
right? it's almost like uh, when you get a job, like, sure, you could just walk in and they could start training you and you can learn it. It's easy. It's not that bad. You can get hired. You can get fired. The difference is, you know, you're you got to be in the system. <laughs> You've got to be in the, you know, with the comp in the system with the company. You know, so that mm -hmm. way you can get paid, you can get, you know, insurance, you can, mm -hmm. you know, track all what you're doing. Yeah, you can do the work without the company, but it's being you know, initiated, so to speak, with the company that makes you an employee. So, you know, transition that to Christianity, uh, you know, the, you can be a Christian without being baptized technically, or you can. I mean, the thief make, on the cross, the thief, yeah. the thief on the cross was not baptized, but Jesus said to him, today you'll yeah. see me in paradise. There's now, more just the finality of showing you're in the community. But it's important because it actually displays your faith because you can make an argument too. It's like, okay, well, what if, God told Abraham, hey, get circumcised. This is my covenant with you. And Abraham's like, nah, I don't really want to do that. You know, I'm just not going to get circumcised. Mm. Then would he still be, I mean, that's that interesting question where it's like, yeah. would Abraham or would, you know, an Israelite at that time, if they were following God and yet they didn't obey his commands, right, of being right. circumcised, would they then be saved? So you could say the same thing today. Okay, well, if you're a Christian, um, and you're not doing <laughs> what a Christian does, right? If you're not a yeah. believer and Jesus said, you know, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? So if, if basically, you know, you're a Christian, get baptized. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, that's simple enough. It's not so, like, you know, it's, there's much more difficult initiation rituals that you could go through in other religions. I'm thankful we don't have to do that anymore, right? I mean, yeah. imagine, you know, well, I guess by the time, you know, after Abraham, this was kind of like a thing done at, um, you know, a young age. But, and that's where we get into infant baptism, right? So if Paul makes the link between baptism and circumcision, that baptism is essentially the New Testament circumcision where we are in the community of God. So, in yeah. the, and that's how the early church treated it too. You couldn't be in the church without being baptized. And the same way you couldn't be an Israelite if you weren't circumcised. Now, were people in the church and, you know, sinning or did they fall away after being baptized? Yes. Were the people, were there Israelites who chose bad after being circumcised? Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. So it's not just because somebody was baptized or just because somebody was, you know, circumcised doesn't mean that. Hey, they were faithful in life. They, they were a follower of Christ uh, or a follower of, of God. But what it does mean is you can't be in an Israelite. You can't be in the church. You couldn't be in Christ, you know, in the fellowship, the community of God without that initiation. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so what baptism, you know, is now, which we kind of got, we've gotten away from that. But the early church had this in, in their minds because the early church would not let believers come into the community of God and partake in communion as we saw without being baptized. So you make a confession of faith, you're a believer, then you get baptized. Now you're in the church. So that was kind of how the early church operated. Now it would seem really harsh today if we did that because we kind of open up doors. And it's like, Hey, anybody can walk in kind of thing. But the early church was a little more strict, strict about who was walking in and partaking in communion and doing stuff like that. Yeah, especially when they're getting persecuted. <laughs> especially when they're getting persecuted, too. They're not having somebody yeah. come in and just like... More out of necessity rather than we don't want you around. <laughs> yeah, and it's, you know, that was that was the act of faith. Now, then you're like, okay, well, if Paul makes the link between baptism and circumcision, then if... You know, in the Old Testament, infants were circumcised to be a part of the community of God in Israel. Wouldn't that mean that 
we would we should baptize infants. Now that's an interesting question. I really yeah. don't have a set opinion either way, but this was also in debate in the other church. And I actually want to read what um what's let me see what um Justin this? Martyr and Tert well Tertullian, some of the early church fathers kind of debated this actually themselves. They didn't know what to do with infant baptism. Well, this is something we also talked about in that class. You know, is infant baptism necessary? Is it not? You know, mm -hmm. the different why it's done. And it's, yeah, I'm still kind of on the fence about that one too. I'm not sure 100% where I fall on that one as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, it doesn't hurt to baptize them as a child, but I feel like it's one of those things personally where you need to be, you know, old enough to understand what's going on to make that decision. Uh, but then I think of like in our church, we do, or in the Church of God, or I guess any not just church of god but um baby dedications where it's not baptizing them but mm -hmm. it's a similar thing where it's like you're dedicating essentially them to god. they're what they're doing they're saying you're now part of the community of god which is yeah. exactly what baptism was in the first place and so even these debates are happening early it says here in the oxford history of um uh, what does it say for history of Christian worship. So it's uh, on page 42. It says, along with these specific ritual details, third century sources also show that infant baptism, including in some cases, infant communion, was being practiced widely. When the question of infants is considered in this period of history, it is not simply their baptism, but their complete initiation, including the reception of communion that is implied. So Tertullian strongly cautions against infant baptism, arguing that, let's see here, People should be made Christians only when they have become competent to know Christ. So that would be a big argument today. Most, uh, you know, people make today as far as that don't don't like infant baptism. Uh, but Origen, however, calls it an apo apostolic custom uh, that makes provision for those who cannot answer for themselves. Uh, gives a theological defense based on the inheritance from Adam of the disease of death. So, I mean, this, again, this is like this community of God thing where okay, you're you're now part of the faith community. Therefore, you get baptized. Right. So and, you know, people will make the counter argument where infant baptism wasn't in the New Testament. But it's like you have to remember here, people aren't growing up Christians in the New Testament. They're becoming Christians. So what do you do 100 years later, decades later, when now Christ, people who become Christians have kids? What do they do with their kids? How did mm -hmm. they get them in the... Because if, if you can't be in the community of God without being baptized, well, their solution was just like circumcision was to be in the community of Israel. Paul makes that, you know, they uh, let's have, you know, infants baptism so that now they can be a part of the community of God, which now we just do, most churches just do baby dedications. Acts is the same thing. Um, you know, we're going to watch over this child and make sure we're, you know, they're good. Um, but it, it is interesting because it was debated then in the early church. It's still debated today. I don't think there's any harm in doing it as long as you recognize that that itself isn't, you know, salvation. It's yeah. to be a part of the community of God. It's the, you know, again, the, the re, it is this regeneration, regenerative thing where, okay, it's going from old life to new. But it, it's also an initiation right into the church and being a part of the community of God. So I, I don't have an answer either way. If yeah. you do it, that's fine. If you don't do it, that's fine. That's kind of my opinion. But uh, that's what the New Testament, the early church was doing. A lot of early churches by the third century were practicing it for baptism because they knew Paul linked it with circumcision. 
and they wanted their kids to be a part of the community of God in the church and nobody could be in the church without being baptized. So they're like, well, I want my kid to be baptized so that they can be in the church. Makes sense. Uh, so that's just, why they do it. that's just what the early church did. Not everybody in their church did, but a lot of them did. So that's yeah. kind of what it looked like with baptism there. Um, another thing is um, wanted to show you kind of what it looked like. So early churches, they obviously look like this where they were. Uh, well, here, let me take the first off real quick. Yeah, the fans, the projectors and everything. <laughs> and the, and the lights. And the yeah, but so, so this is a this is a modern uh, church, but this just shows that the early church had alien technology. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> but uh, so this is a modern church, right? But it's showing you like okay, underground catacomb stuff. What like the environment would have kind of looked like? A That'd be cool to visit. So. This gives you an idea, okay, the church under persecution. Now, what it actually looked like, here's a restored version of a Syriac church, mm. which was actually an early church, uh, a house church. And so nice. they had frescoes on the wall. You can see here there's, um, you know, baptismal. And in front of the baptismal, you have, you know, literally the depictions of people being baptized on the wall, like in, on this fresco. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I think it's quite beautiful. I think yeah. you know, the early church they had visual representations because you got to think too not everybody's literate right <laughs> so you have very much um visual representations later when we get to the middle ages we get mosaics and a lot of you know yeah. later renaissance we got these magnificent paintings in the sistine chapel and all this stuff but um early early house churches you just have these frescoes of depicting things like um baptism things like jesus things like mm -hmm. you know um you know the gospel stories, etc. So yeah, that's one thing that the modern church has kind of gotten away from is the artwork. You know, mm -hmm. it's kind of you know the church buildings have become a little bit more sterilized as far as just the solid color, some decorations here and there. But I mean, it does take a lot of time and resources and money to mm -hmm. you know, do art like that. But uh, it doesn't hurt if you can. <laughs> yeah, and here's another um, what an early church would have looked like and um so this is you know house church where you have the courtyard and you have the baptistry which is kind of what you saw here in the last um photo here so there's the baptismal with the frescoes on the wall nice. um on the top right corner and then yeah you got the entrance you have like an assembly room for them to gather for them to give a uh to share the apostles teachings to do um the the rites of uh worship in the teaching area there yeah so so it's a lot like you know <clears throat> our modern day churches where you have you know a foyer you got your main sanctuary you got your classrooms you got a baptistry area which is usually in the sanctuary yeah. but, but on a much smaller scale <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes because that was like a literal person's like house like the size of a person's house right uh yeah this would be a more rich like a Usually, house. usually when you have a community of faith, whoever's got the best house, right? That's that you're going. <laughs> it happens today, even with small groups in churches, right? Like uh, you got a, a good family in the church where it's like they have a house that they want to, you know, share. Hey, all the you guys can have a Bible study in my house. Usually, it's you know, a decent house because, right. um, you know, they they have the resources yeah. to give to the church and to share. Yeah. Hey, I got a house. Let me use that for the church, and um, you know, yeah, have to over. So. Yeah, that happened back then, except they were being persecuted, so they kind of had to meet in, in yeah. uh, 
It was their only option, but it was still cool. <laughs> Uh, so that's baptism, uh, communion. Obviously, I just wanted to briefly talk about that because we, we talked about it a lot already, but communion uh, did come out of the Passover. And I wanted to read what the New Testament says about that and kind of how we already saw in the DDK how the early church already knew and understood that. Yeah. And they put it to practice. But in 1 Corinthians um, 11... Right after, which right after the head covering passage, which we need to cover at some point. Um, so eleven seventeen to thirty three, and so this is Paul talking to you know again the New Testament church. Mm-hmm. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it it is not for better but for worse. So he, he's Paul's ripping on the Corinthians here for <laughs> messing up communion, right? Uh, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, which is not good because, and even the DDK picked up on this to say, hey, Paul's instructions to heart, but let's take that, you know, before you even give an offering, before you even do, you know, confession and and all this stuff in communion, go ahead and reconcile with your brother. Like, let there be no divisions among you. So that was kind of hammered in, right? So they understood that. I hear you that there's you know, divisions among you, and I believe in part for there must be mm-hmm. factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating each one goes ahead and with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? <laughs> yeah, I'd be saying the same thing. What is wrong with you? That is not <laughs> communion at all, right? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to this? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And then this is where he gives the instruction. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, so again, the Passover, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after uh, after supper, saying, This is the cup. Or this is the this cup is of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the Lord the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an Well, I think we lost Chandler there for a second. <laughs> so I'm sure we'll come back on in just a minute. But um, yeah, let me see if I can get him back up. All right, well, we do apologize for that, everybody. <laughs> you know, sometimes that happens with our uh, school internet. You know, we tend to have some issues there. All righty. All right, so can uh, 
any of you guys hear him uh, back on the stream at all? Fun part about recording live, right? <laughs> Well, sorry about that, guys. <laughs> hey. Now we got them. Wow, what happened there? That was strange. I was trying to figure out, man, is that something on my end? Is that my, you know, my connection or, geez. <laughs> the devil's a liar. True, yes. <laughs> I guess, you know, I'm reading scripture and all of a sudden this Bam. is, you know, um, that's a, I'll just say that's an attack right there. So Somewhere. where did I where did I freeze? At? So I was reading the Lord's Supper, Paul's instructions. Where did you guys have me cut off? Uh, you were at the point where he was talking about uh, not condoning the drunkenness. Oh, like really? You were, you were, that far back. Okay, so yeah, and I said, um, whoever therefore eats and drinks uh, bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner concerning the body and blood of the Lord, let the person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we will not. We would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. <laughs> so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other, other things that I will give directions when I come. So... Obviously, um, yeah, Paul, this is a good comment. Paul took communion seriously. Yes. <laughs> um, and this was hammered in even in the early church. So even though you have this diversity in the early church and there's, um, you know, they're spread out, it's they, they maintain these two things of baptism and communion. And uh, even in the early church, you know, with the DDK, they, they give this warning of, um, you know, don't do it in an unworthy manner. I mean, yep. it says here in the in the chapter nine of the DDK, the early church was basically um, say, "Hey, um, what did it say here? Even at this broken bread was scattered over the hills." Uh, okay, here, but let no one eat or drink of your Thanksgiving or Eucharist, but they who have been baptized in the same Lord. For concerning this also, the Lord has said, "Give not what is holy to the dogs." I mean, they took it seriously already, not letting no. any just anybody, but no, also. Interpret at all what Paul was saying as if you take it unworthily, like you'll die, or do you think it's more of like a spiritual, um, not maybe not a curse, but a spiritual mm. issue? As far as like, um, 
you know, so those taking are- it in an unworthy manner. Yeah. I think obviously doing what was previously <laughs> they were doing where it was not waiting for each other. They were getting drunk and they were just mm-hmm. eating and not caring about anybody else. It wasn't about coming together. It was just people, you know, have, try and have a good time. I think yeah. that's already a, um, you know, like unworthy manner already, not respecting. And then I think that's even true. what the DDK in here says too, of like reconcile, let there be no divisions. So making sure that you're good with your brother, right? Don't have beef with anybody before you start taking part in communion and offering up your sacrifice, so to so, or your worship, so to, so to speak. I've um, heard some people say like, if you take it unworthily, like you're at you know, the risk of death, <laughs> but. Um, oh, well, I mean, I think he says that. In the past tense, you know, it's like this is why some of you have died or yeah. what, you know, because you've just been profaning God. So yeah. I think there is, <laughs> if anything, if anything in the church is going to be honored, let it be baptism and communion. Because those two things were very, you know, um, again, in the, New, in the New Testament, in the early church, they were practicing and making sure that these two things were honored, right? That you're honoring the Lord in these two things. So, I mean... Yeah, okay, you got preaching, you got worship, you got these big things that we're doing in church today. Um, but if you're gonna if you're gonna goof off, don't do it with these two things. I mean, these are yeah. <laughs> the, there's warnings enough that the early church was warning them, you know, believers in the early church don't do it. The New Testament, Paul is warning New Testament believers, hey, get this right. Um, so when you do so, take communion and you do, you know, have baptism, um, don't let there be any divisions. Reconcile with people you have problems with. Take yeah. it in a worthy manner. Honor God. Praise Him. Give thanksgiving. I love how it's before and after Thanksgiving. The early church was like, let's you know, we we do communion. We give thanks before. We give thanks after. We praise and honor God afterwards as well. It's important. Yes. Very important. <laughs> Absolutely. And so that was uh, what I want to say about that. Uh, Paul's correction when when he talks to the Corinthians. Um, last, uh, last two things I wanted to point out of what else the early church was, um, talking about when they, when they had, um, in worship, what did the service look like? So there were some liturgies that were starting to be put together as the church developed over time. And as we get into Christianity that was less persecuted, there seems to be this, um, this structure, this, that emerges. And, um, I know that in, in the, Let's see here. I think it was Justin Martyr. He uh, he puts out um, this order of service in his what, what's called the first apology, and uh, and Tertullian as well. And so I like this list in in this book because it kind of combines what Tertullian said and Justin Martyr to kind of form what the early church probably did and looked like. And so this was um, oh hold on that was weird. Siri was picking up on everything I was saying. <laughs> Looking at her notes, it just kept adding and adding. It's like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, anyways, so this list here, what what did it look like? So they met on Sundays at a Sunday assembly. Um, they would have biblical readings or psalms that they would read. Uh, they would have some homily, which is you know some word right they would give. Uh, they'd have prayers and intercessions. They would say the Lord's prayer. Um, they had it has here it says the kiss of peace. Not for sure what that's referring to. Presentation. <laughs> of the bread and mixed cup of, you know, communion. So they would have communion, the Eucharist. Uh, they have the Eucharistic prayer, which is what we read from the Didache. 
Um, they would have um, an amen of the assembly, and then they'd have reception of communion. They'd have a dismissal, and then they would have a collection for the support. Uh, so offering at the end, right, uh, for the support of widows and orphans, taking of communion to those who are unable to be present, and uh, the reservation of the Eucharist at home. So this is kind of what their church structure started to form into a little bit, which, you know, I love that still do we do today. Yeah, uh, it does look a little different than churches today, um, but it is um, certainly like got some similar elements. It is yeah. it is interesting that they made a, a, a point to take care of orphans and widows at the end of the service for the offering. And you know, in the new in Acts, when it talks about they came together and uh, there were none in need, you know, and they they would um, take care oh, of yeah. one another. They shared with one another their their possessions. Mm -hmm. um and what's really crazy is that the ddk was not playing around when it came to prosperity people at all um it says yeah, here on facebook the other day yeah i did actually post it so uh, here's some sections from chapter 11 of the ddk and uh here i'll, I'll pull pull up the the sections that i referenced so it says, whosoever, therefore, comes and teaches you all these things uh, that have been said before, receive him. But if the teacher himself turn and teach another doctrine to the destruction of this, hear him not. <laughs> so obviously people preaching a false gospel, right? Mm -hmm. But if he teach so as to increase righteousness and the knowledge of the Lord, receive him as the Lord. And when the apostle goes away, let him take nothing but bread until he lodges. But if he ask money... He is a false prophet. <laughs> but whoever says in the spirit, give me money or something else, you shall not listen to him. But if he says to you to give for others' sake who are in need, let no one judge him. So the early church um, definitely had a handle on that as well. They were fans of televangelists. They, <laughs> yeah, so they, I'm sure that there were their own versions of televangelists who were trying to come around and make money. But mm -hmm. uh, they were like, hey, we're not going to... Now, it does people take money. going around asking for your money? And, it does take money to do ministry, but that's not what it what they're getting at referring to. About. Yeah, and at the end of service, it says here, you know, they're sharing positions, they're taking care of orphans and widows. They're, you know, they're getting this. Um, now they're meeting in somebody's house, so it's like okay, somebody's house, somebody's house. So you don't need to raise necessarily money for utilities and all this stuff, and and for keeping the church. Obviously, we see this structure emerge as we get into non persecuted Christianity where you need obviously money <laughs> to fund yeah. the things of the church. Right. Yeah. Um, but obviously he, this is referring to, you know, people who are trying to use the gospel for their own gain. Um, give me money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Um, and so last thing uh, was, you know, that obviously that's a service order. Um, but I wanted to show what Eusebius said. He's the early church historian which um, talking about kind of the daily prayer and the liturgy that was going on and, and the church structure and worship. What, the, what did that look like at that time? And, um, and he says, Eusebius talking, for it is surely no small sign of God's power that throughout the whole world in the churches of God at the, at the morning of the sun and at the evening hours, hymns, praises, and truly divine delights are offered to God. God's delights are indeed the hymns sent up everywhere on earth in the church at the times of morning and evening. For this reason, it is said somewhere, 
let my praise be sung sweetly to him in the Psalms, and let my prayer be like incense before you, and also Psalms 140. So that is, uh, you know, a beautiful picture where, okay, was there music in the early church? Yes, people singing, and, Mm -hmm. you know, occasionally they're, you have Roman instruments, you have harps, you know, they sometimes utilize these things, but mostly they get together, they'd sing hymns, psalms, praises to God. Obviously, you have the praise after communion, but then it says here, you see, this is saying, hey, a lot of early churches in the morning when the sun rises and the evening, the sun, sun setting, churches and, and Christians would praise, sing hymns and praises and songs to the Lord, uh, almost like the sacrifices, worship, this incense rising to be pleasing to the Lord. Mm-hmm. So, um, that, that is, you know, obviously churches today have a big emphasis on music and worship. And so, um, yes, that was a thing in the in the old, uh, in the early church, you know. And they, obviously it wasn't like it was necessarily today. But, so, you know, there's some people who say, oh, they worship wasn't a thing back then. I'm like, well, people <laughs> yeah. were singing praises to God. And they were collectively, collectively singing praises. And that have been going on since the Old Testament, like we had mentioned uh in a, our previous episode, like, you know, the playing instruments and singing isn't a new thing. You know, that goes back to, you know, mm-hmm. David. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's not a bad thing. And, you know, like you said, now they were doing it there. You know, it's music is definitely an important part of worship. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I find it interesting. It makes it so much better. Yeah. And I find it interesting too. And I like this comment. It's interesting. Singing replaced incense, which used in Roman worship. And there's some churches, Christian churches, that still do incense, especially in the Eastern tradition. Um, but what's uh, what's interesting is that, you know, you have Judaism and you have um, even the pagan religions that are in Roman, and they were literally sacrificing animals and they were literally offering incense. And now you have the shift in the New Testament and, and early church where incense is our praise and now we're offering our own bodies as a sacrifice unto god pleasing to him right and jesus jesus was the once for all atoning sacrifice and now for uh you know praise offerings if you will this is our own bodies that we're living out mm-hmm. the gospel right and so we are our singing is rising to the heavens let it be pleasing to god eusebius says hey this is what church were, churches were doing you know before you have legal Christianity, even when Christianity was illegal, you have churches that are in the morning and in the evening and Christian believers getting to gathering together to sing praises to the Lord as if it was incense rising up uh, as, you know, as a sacrifice and incense would. So, yeah, yeah. Um, that's uh, basically all I have. Um, that's what the church looked like a little bit. Um, that's what it in practice and in worship and in beliefs a little bit um, from 70 AD to the Edict of Milan, and the Edict of Milan was basically Emperor Constantine saying, hey, Christianity is legal and now kind of favored, uh, and the Roman Empire, which spread, you know, that's that owned quite a bit of territory. So now Christianity is coming out of the shadows a little bit, out of the catacombs, out of the house churches. And, and we'll hopefully talk- we can see progression too, like, you know, like how we started with the Old Testament and we're slowly, you know, moving forward, you can see how it went from temples to synagogues mm-hmm. to houses and you know, how they influenced each other and how it's not just Christianity showed up out of nowhere, like you said earlier in the episode, like it was, you know, following some kind of loosely preset guidelines, but see the evolution of, you know, how we worship changing. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting. Yeah, where we got the celebration of, you know, the Lord's Day now, 
not just the Sabbath where it's like Jesus rising from the dead. This is a now consecutive thing. Sundays, believers are gathering, singing mm-hmm. praises. In the morning, we're saying the Lord's Prayer every day. Now, when we come together, we have communion, we have baptism of believers coming into the church, and we're honoring God in that way. And so that's what the early church looked like, and it was very, it's very interesting. Um, and hopefully, you know, now that we see Christianity coming out of the shadows, how does it change? How does worship change? How does Christianity change as we go into the Constantine, Constantine mm-hmm. era of Christianity? Um, so that'll be next time. Uh, but yeah, hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode as we go through Christian worship from Old Testament to today. Seth, do you have any final thoughts of maybe what we talked about or any additional things I want to say about early worship in the early church? Don't forget to eat. <laughs> now, I found that interesting that that was uh, uh, one, one thing that I was reading about, that they still you know, kept that as a tradition to just get together and you know, have feasts, not just the, uh, or well, meals, not necessarily feasts, but um, you know, that they still got together to have that you know, time together, community spend time together, um, aside from Eucharist. And it was like, sometimes I read that they would usually, you know, the Eucharist is one and they would, uh, maybe have feasts to commemorate, uh, martyrs or, you know, leaders in the church, their deaths, or even just the festivals, like the Jewish mm-hmm. festivals come together and eat, you know, and I think about even now modern times, like what's something that we always do when we have church or after church, we all go eat together, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, we'll go to a church service on a Sunday morning and go get lunch together. We go to church on Sunday night and we go. Get I did that today. Yeah. And you do that, you know, Wednesday night. Sometimes you have the dinner at the church. Sometimes you go out to eat. Like it's, you know, even now we don't realize it, but that's still a big thing. And we don't make it a church service, but it's something we do with, you know, other believers from the church as we go eat together. That's true. And it sounds weird, but I mean, it's a big thing. That's where you, you know, form relationships. You can talk about stuff. So don't forget Absolutely. to go eat with your family <laughs> yeah and uh i know we're over time but i still like to always interact with the comments a little bit i know we did it a little bit throughout this episode but another one from your view the the symbol so our thumbnail for the video was the early early fish symbol which was a kind of secret message of christianity right uh it's kind of like an acronym but i mean yeah your view kind of points it out too he says the symbol of the fish was a secret symbol for christ Ichthyos in greek spells out the initials of jesus christ lord and savior yeah i did i didn't know that that's why i put it on there uh because it was you know christianity was being persecuted so they have these symbols right of you know this you see this fish yeah. right uh, with it, it is kind of an interesting symbol and some people have it on their car on the back of their cars now when you drive the little christian symbol yeah. um the fish christian fish it's because you know christianity is persecuted and so um it, it wasn't like a secret society, but it is kind of like a cool, you know, they graffiti it, you know, yeah. in places. And you can um, see why it was easy for people like the Gnostics to show up because it's like, ooh, they're secret. So let's create an offshoot of that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it is an acronym, but it's also symbolic because, you know, there's so much of this fish language, you know, Jesus turning the fish, you know, feeding the 5,000. Uh, then you have this, you know, where you're going to, his disciples are fishermen and, you know, you'll be fishers of man. And then you got this, you know, a like perfect acronym in Greek, which is then spelling out, you know, Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. So um, there's a lot of fishermen, fish language here, which is kind of interesting. Uh, actually, one day I hope to do a whole episode on that because how the fishers of men was a bad connotation and how Jesus really turns it into a good one. It was kind of like, um, kind of like a, uh, 
uh, what's the word? I don't Negative. know if it's the right word, but it wasn't a, uh, uh, a prestigious job, so to speak. Well, fishing, but then you also got to think of the Assyrians who, when they captured Israel, they worshiped the fish god and they oh, would, would take, uh, when they captured Israelites, they would um, put fish hooks on their cheeks and their mouth and, and put it through their cheeks and they would drag whole peoples, dragging them by their, their mouths, uh, fish okay. hooks, uh, basically fishing men, literal, quite literally okay. and uh, painfully. To kind of, um, I be forgot this. that they, I forgot that there was that, um, the fish deity, um, I, the hook thing I didn't actually realize was something that they did. That's pretty rough. <laughs> yeah, they, no, and here's the fish god Dagon. Yeah, uh, Hebrew, Hebrew, um, the word dog is fish, and so it's interesting. Mm. Dagon, the god of fish, right? Okay. Um, you're the that, Hebrew guys. Yeah. I'll trust you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, they. Yeah, this whole fishers of men. Again, we have to do a whole episode on that where oh, yeah. Jesus really flips the whole fishers of men thing. And even in Greek sources, fishers of men is kind of has a, you know, you're trying to hoodwink people. But, okay. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of there, but then it's interesting that, you know, the early church symbol, right, is the fish where Jesus takes fishermen and he lit- quite literally uh, in a good way catches, you know, fish, people, right? Um, to become Christians and, and partake in, in the eternal. So yeah. it's quite beautiful, I think. Um, kind of the parallel of, uh, you know, of a person coming to Christ, how they, you know, start off as, you know, they may have all, all this baggage, but then they become a Christian. It's a totally different connotation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. It all comes well, together. <laughs> I, uh, I really don't have any anything else. Um, so I think we'll end it here. We are about 30 minutes over our time. <laughs> So I know I froze right. a little bit there, but uh, for a little bit, so we'll blame that. <laughs> yeah, we'll join you guys next time. Uh, well, I think it's next week, but you know, if we don't come next week, it'll be the week after. But definitely next time. Uh, we'll I know we're coming about so uh, Easter. everybody. You know, hopefully, y'all are getting excited for that. We got Palm Sunday. We got Easter. I mean, it's a fun time. You know, oh, go yeah. out and get yourself a nice suit if you can, <laughs> or at least a brightly colored shirt. You know. I still got to yeah. figure out like what our usually our family we try to coordinate we'll pick colors coordinate colors uh so i got we got to figure out what our plan is for that so i can start you know get my shirt or whatever but you guys do that too on easter um i really just dress up in the nicest thing i have here in the closet and go yeah. for it and we'll usually get like you know some kind of nicely brightly colored shirt and a tie and that's about it <laughs> something like that i don't really wear suits anymore i mean growing up i always we always wore suits to some extent and as mm-hmm. we've gotten older we've relaxed it more to where my dad now mm-hmm. wear you know jeans or khakis while he's preaching which he never used to do um sometimes on sunday mornings at least not on wednesday nights but texas and florida yeah. man i might come in shorts uh. yeah <laughs> i know there was a uh church somewhere i think it was jacob was saying that it was uh someone he knew went to a church where they did that. The pastor literally showed up in like shorts and flip-flops and a t-shirt because they were like a beach town. So oh, they, makes sense. <laughs> but yeah. if it works, it works. All right, it's a good one to end on. Nice to you both. Good luck in your studies. Thank you. Uh, thank you for all the interactions. For everybody else yeah. that may be watching this or watching it after the fact, feel free to comment. Mm-hmm. Um, we love comments, interaction. And uh, maybe we'll do a Q&A episode coming up at some point. So. Those are fun. Yeah, I'll see you guys and uh, have a good one. See you, bye.